Thanks for joining us. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. You are now tuned in to this episode of our podcast. Today we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. And now, please welcome your host. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. Always a privilege, always a treat to have Harvard Law Professor Emeritus Alan Avi Dorsch is with us. So welcome back to the program. And how was your Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur so far? Rosh Hashanah was uh, fine. Yom Kippur, I did something I've never done in my life before. Um, I fasted. I went to shul. But between Musaf and uh, Mincha, there was a break. And I actually worked for the first time in my life on Yom Kippur to try to save the life of a Jewish man on death row who scheduled for execution on um, October 10th. And so I actually wrote an affidavit on his behalf on Yom Kippur. So I don't pass the Sandy Koufax test, but uh, Sandy was just playing baseball. I was trying to do Pikuach Nefesh. Was that something that was pressing for that day that needed to be done? Otherwise, it couldn't be done after Yom Kippur. I was just curious to know the scenario. No, it had to be done that day. We had to get the affidavit in that day, and um, there was no opportunity to postpone it. And uh, I put the life of a Jewish man on death row um, before um, my obligation uh, not to work. As I said, I fasted all day, but uh, I did put a few hours of work in uh, during the during the recess. And I don't know whether it will have any impact on saving his life. It's a terrible terrible injustice that's being carried out, and I'm trying everything in my power to save him. I just got involved in the case a few days ago, and so I'm not his lawyer. I'm just um, pro bono uh, acting as a good Samaritan trying to uh, to uh, get his uh, execution commuted and sentenced to life imprisonment. He committed a murder, yes, um, but under Texas law, you don't get the death penalty for a single murder. Uh, they have to prove that you're probably dangerous and that you've committed previous crimes. And so without being charged or accused formally of any previous crime, uh, they argued to the jury that he had been involved in a prior non, non-lethal, nobody was hurt, uh, carjacking. But it's now been proved by his lawyers that he couldn't have been involved in that carjacking. Uh, he was at work that day. There are records of that. Uh, there were suppressed fingerprints and suppressed DNA evidence. So uh, he was uh, sentenced to death on the basis of a false prediction based on false evidence, and that's what we're focusing on our, our and for our clemency petition. But it's very uphill because it's only a few days before he's supposed to die. You're talking about Jadidia Murphy, who does not a Jewish-sounding name, but from what I understand, the Chabad rabbi said he's Jewish, and you have lots of Jewish organizations advocating on his behalf. Yeah, he's halakhically Jewish. Um, that's how I got called into the case, but uh, all of my other death row cases, and I've done numerous death row cases, have all been for um, non-Jewish inmates. Uh, And I would have done this case um, had I been told about it, uh, whether he was Jewish or not. Understood. So we have all these different Jewish groups, and you're saying, based on what you mentioned, the fact that they repressed some evidence, you say it's not going to make any difference, there's a slim chance of getting his sentence commuted. Uh, 
difference, but it's uphill at this point when you come in when you come in so late uh, in the game. And they also didn't take into account the fact that he had a long history of serious mental illness and being abused by uh, people uh, before he committed this uh, terrible murder uh, back almost 20 years ago. But for 20 years, he's been a model prisoner and no acts of violence, no claims of violence. And so the prediction the jury made that he would be violent even in prison has proved to be false, just as the allegation of a prior carjacking proved to be false. What happened is the woman saw him on television being arrested for the murder. And she said, oh, you know, it, it might be the same guy. It was a carjacking. But the identification was a very weak identification. And there were no, there's no, no forensic evidence tying him to the scene. And there is evidence uh, making it clear that he couldn't have been at the scene. So I think the assumption has to be made that he had no involvement in the first uh, carjacking. Now, in the Ford article about this particular case, it's mentioned that you're planning to appeal directly to the governor of Texas. I guess that's a, not a legal appeal, but I guess you have you tried that yet, or what's what's the story with that? Process. The legal process includes a commutation request to the governor and the board of parole. Uh, his lawyers are doing that. I'm assisting. I'm helping. I prepared an affidavit. I'm an expert on prediction. I've written six books on prediction. I taught courses for what. 40 years at Harvard Law School called the Prediction and Prevention of Harmful Conduct, or courses like that. So I'm probably one of the leading experts in the country on the difficulty of predicting violence, uh, especially 40 years hence. I mean, if he if he were to be spared the death penalty, uh, he would be serving more than 40 years in prison. He'd be an old man by the time he got out. And the idea that, uh, you know, we know the prophecy ended with the Second Temple, uh, but uh, ability to predict as Yogi Berra once said, prediction is very hard, especially about the future. And, and you just can't predict uh, what this man would do except by looking at what he's done. And for the last 20 years, he's been uh, a model prisoner. Now, you're opposed to the death penalty, I believe, right? In all cases, most cases, what's your exact position? I'm against the death penalty, but even those who are in favor of the death penalty think it should be reserved for the most heinous multi-mass murderers, people who have committed many crimes, many murders, and who are very, very dangerous. I think you can have a reasonable argument about whether the death penalty is proper for a serial murderers, ter terrorists, and the like, but I don't think it's ever proper for a person who committed one murder when he was a very young man, mentally ill, and has totally rehabilitated himself. You know, he's found religion, and it's genuine, according to the rabbis, and he would like to spend the rest of his life in prison ministering to uh, other prisoners and trying to persuade them to rehabilitate themselves the way he rehabilitated himself. So the only purpose of killing him would be vengeance. And, um, you know, as as I think uh, uh, some religions say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So. <laughs> Want to get your opinion about the latest rulings regarding Donald Trump, where the ruling was that his business enterprises in New York were going to be taken away and that he owes $250 million and that he overinflated his property. So therefore, the judge was also the juror. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, when you're dealing with large properties like this, uh, no bank takes seriously the estimation done by the owner of the property. They have a whole staff of people who do their own assessment. And if you look at the way the judge talked about Mar-a-Lago, uh, he said basically that 
Mar-a-Lago has been assessed by the taxing authorities in Palm Beach County for between, I think, 18 and $27 million. Tell you what, if he wants to sell it to me for $27 million, I'll borrow money from you and other rich people, <laughs> and I'll buy it for $27 million and sell it tomorrow for more than $270 million. It would be the quickest turnaround in profit ever. So you have to be skeptical of a judge who even suggests, even implies for a second that Mar-a-Lago is not worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Of course it is. So how do they get away with it? Because we had this discussion before. It seems that this judge has an in uh, for President Donald Trump, a former President Donald Trump, and he's a judge in the jury and the jury as well. And it's once you have to overturn it, it's much tougher than initially. So can can the pre- ex-president get a fair trial in this city? Uh, that's why I entitled my book, Get Trump. There's a movement there. The attorney general of New York who brought this case campaigned on the campaign promise of getting Trump. If she doesn't get Trump, she won't be reelected. And Bragg uh, did essentially the same thing. And so you can't get a fair trial in New York where, uh, what, 76 percent of the voters who would be in the jury pool um, would have voted against him and probably half of them hate his guts. Um, And I don't know why this case, I'm not familiar with New York land law, but you would think that for a penalty and for fraud uh, allegations like this, you'd get a trial by jury. It doesn't mean he'd do better in a trial by jury, but I can't imagine him doing worse than having a judge who even suggested. Now, he's going to say, well, I didn't say it. It's just uh, the the uh, assessment is 18 to 27 million dollars. It's a joke to even talk about 17 to 28 million dollars houses next door um, to to uh, Mar-a-Lago, which have an acre or two acres or three acres are going for two hundred million dollars uh, waterfront property like that. And so it, it you, you just can't take seriously this judge's statement about value at 40 Wall Street, do you think that any bank is going to say, oh, uh, Donald Trump says it's worth so and so? We're just going to take his word for it. Of course not. They're going to look at comparables. They're going to look at the rent rolls. They're going to look at a whole range of issues that uh, accountants look at and assessors look at. Uh, nobody ever, ever takes seriously uh, the claims of the owner of a building. And there's no indication that anybody actually lost any money. So if nobody lost any money and nobody filed any complaints, so what's the basis for the attorney general to bring charges? His name is Donald Trump, and she promised to get Trump. And if you promise to get Trump, you better get him. And that's what's happened to our criminal justice system. It's become weaponized for partisan political purposes. As you know, I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm going to vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is. I've been a Democrat since... I voted for, for John Kennedy in 1960, and I could vote Republican. I voted for Republican a few times, for Governor Weld. I would have voted for Mitt Romney had I been a little smarter uh, the second time he ran against uh, Barack Obama. But I am a Democrat. I'm not supporting Donald Trump's political ambitions or plans, but I care about the Constitution. I care about equal justice. I care about not having one system of justice for Donald Trump and another system of justice for Joe Biden and his family. But if nobody brings a complaint and there's no harm and banks made money on it, so you can just bring a suit because you say, I want to be politicized, I want to, I don't like the person, on what legal basis can you bring it if there's nobody harmed, nobody's bringing a lawsuit? Well, it's the attorney general who can bring it, and it's a strange law. You know, in Israel, people complain that anybody can bring a lawsuit, uh, that you don't need what's called standing. 
And but in the United States, you generally do need standing. You generally need to show that somebody was hurt. And yet there's this exception under New York property law, I guess, where the attorney general, on behalf of all the people, can uh, be a you know somebody who is trying to uh, prevent fraud from occurring, even if there was no harm. I, I don't get it. And I hope the courts of appeals will look uh, very, very scrupulously at this case. Um, again, I don't know enough about the facts to know whether it will be reversed or not. I'm just saying, don't trust the judge who uses figures like 18 to $27 million, even when discussing Mar-a-Lago, which may be worth in excess of a billion dollars. It's certainly likely to be more closer to six or seven hundred million dollars than it is to 18 or 27 million dollars. And when you get a judge making those kinds of statements, even if he makes them in hypothetical terms, you have to ask yourself, can we trust the rest of his opinion? My answer is no. We're doing Harvard Law Professor Emeritus, Professor Alan Avi Dershowitz, lawyer of last resort and still fighting with a passion for just causes. Want to get your take on Rudy Giuliani being sued by Hunter Biden's lawyers on the theory that originally they said the laptop wasn't his. Now they're saying it was Hunter Biden's and he hacked into it and therefore they're suing him. Everybody's suing everybody. Uh, we're seeing a complete weaponization of the criminal justice system. Look again what happened in the Trump suit. Not only did they say that Trump had to pay money, but his lawyers had to pay money. They sanctioned his lawyers for bringing this lawsuit. And that's happening all over. There's an organization called the 65 Project, which has said that it would try to disbar or discipline any lawyer who had anything to do with defending Donald Trump. And so I wrote an op-ed piece and I said, I'll defend any lawyer who is targeted by the 65 Project. So what do you think the 65 Project did? They filed a bar complaint against me in order to make sure that I can't represent people out of my home state. So we're obviously fighting that. But lawyers now have become the target. You know, the Shakespeare villain uh, said, first, let's kill the lawyers. And Mao Zedong and Stalin uh, all killed the lawyers first. And now what we're seeing in America is not killing the lawyers, but going after them. And that's a very, very bad sign for democracy uh, in, in our great country. And, and lawyers like me who have the resources to fight back have to fight back. 65 projects said, let's go after weak lawyers who don't have the resources to fight back so as to deter them from getting involved in cases defending Donald Trump. Well, they went after the wrong guy with me, and I'm going to use all my resources to fight back and put them out of business. But how easy a task is that? It seems that the tide is changing where they're getting away with it on many different levels. Hey, I fought against the Soviet Union. I fought against uh, many, many more powerful enemies than a bunch of uh, lawyers uh, who are using their bar uh, certificates uh, to weaponize the criminal and legal justice system uh, in a partisan manner. So I'm not going to give up. I just turned 85, but uh, Hashem so far has given me the uh, resources, the ability, the strength, the seichel uh, to fight back. And I'm going to continue to fight back, not only on my behalf, but on behalf of all Americans who believe in the Constitution. Curious to get your take on Senator Bob Mendez's legal situation. You know, I like Senator Menendez. I don't know him, but I like him. I like his views on Israel. I like the fact that he had the courage to vote against Barack Obama on the Iran deal. I hope he's innocent. It's a hard case to prove. What I don't like is the Justice Department staging photographs. You know what they did? They took a photograph. Um, I think I have it here somewhere. They took a photograph um, uh, that they concocted. Um, 
you know, this is this is not the way they found uh, his jacket with uh, money bulging out of the pockets. What they did was they they took the money probably out of its pockets, put it by the jacket with his name on it in order to stage a photograph. And so uh, that won't be admissible in evidence, but everybody, everybody will be influenced by it. I have to tell you, I've had an interesting week for an 85-year-old. So I met with Zelensky um, um, when he came to the UN. Then I met and had dinner with Bibi when he came to the UN. Today I had a conversation and a discussion with uh, Elon Musk. And uh, yesterday I met with Yo-Yo Ma. So uh, not bad for an 85-year-old who should be retired and, and staying home and sipping tea. So... I'm trying to stay as active as I possibly can for as long as Hashem gives me the strength. 120 plus. Elon Musk, he had some problems with the ADL and anti-Semitism. So what did he tell you? Not an anti-Semite. Let's be very clear about it. He has very close connections to the Jewish community. He loves the fact that his name is Elon, which is an Israeli name. He's been to Israel. He's been to Masada. He made a commitment during the call that I was on to go to uh, the death camps and and visit personally and engage. He's engaged deeply with the Jewish community. And it's it's a shame that people falsely accuse him of anti-Semitism. What it does, when you accuse somebody like Elon Musk, who loves Israel, loves the Jews, when you accuse him of anti-Semitism because you disagree with him, you weaken the concept and you trivialize it. And, uh, and, and, and that shouldn't ever be done. Um, you know, we have to be so careful of our own. The other thing I protested this week, I spoke at a protest in support of Israel because rabbis, including my wife's rabbi in the Central Synagogue and a rabbi that I like very much, Rabbi Cosgrove uh, from Park Avenue, they went to the UN, the UN, the Palace of Hatred. The, the, it's like going in and, and going in front of Der Sturma in, in Nazi Germany and, and railing against uh, against uh, Israel. I don't want to ever make comparisons between Nazism and what's going on today, but the United Nations, let the rabbis protest in front of the Israeli embassy. Let them protest in front of Bibi's hotel, as some did. I spoke in front of Bibi's hotel, but let not a single rabbi ever, ever go in front of the UN. You know, Jewish law says that when you testify in front of world leaders, it's actually in the Talmud, world leaders, when you defame the Jews in front of world leaders, that is a very serious Avera. And uh, you know, I'm not sure some of these rabbis know the meaning of the word Avera, but they ought to look it up. And they ought to look up the Talmud and ask themselves the hard question, why do you pick the United Nations where Iran is lauded and praised and where an Israeli diplomat is escorted out? Why do you pick the United Nations as the place in front of which the protest? Why do you give them your imprimatur of your rabbinical degree? I think anybody who is a member of any of those synagogues whose rabbis protested in front of the U.N. ought to protest their rabbis, not in front of the U.N., but in front of their shuls. When was the last time these rabbis urged the congregants to do a mitzvah, help the Jewish poor go out and support Israel and go to rally for Israel? I they don't even on that, just ask yourself, where were the rabbis when um, when Iran spoke with the UN? Where were the rabbis when the head of the Palestinian Authority said, said, oh, Hitler didn't kill Jews because of a religious uh, or ethnic bias. 
he killed six million Jews. No, he doesn't think they killed six million Jews. They killed a few hundred or a few thousand Jews because they're all moneylenders. A million Jewish babies and children were not moneylenders. And 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 for for Abbas to say that the Jews were killed by Hitler because they were moneylenders, and for the rabbis not to process that, he spoke at the UN. He was praised. He was applauded. Where were the rabbis? They were preparing to protest Israel. Their priorities are all messed up. That's that and, under. No, I, I've engaged with some of the reform rabbis, and I said to them, "You're into tikkun olam, helping world understood." But why can't you include in your helping the poor, the destitute, the Jewish poor? Why not volunteer and teach your kids to go to a Jewish soup kitchen? Go to whatever kitchens you want. The other one, at least do some Jewish stuff. They really didn't have an answer for me. I said, why don't you do something more for our people as opposed to only for others outside our community? You want to, you want to invite uh, Rabbi Cosgrove, who's a very decent man, or Rabbi Buchdahl, who's a very good rabbi and beautiful voice, uh, invite them on your show to discuss with me why they picked the UN as the place to protest in front of. Let's see if they have the courage to confront you and me and the Jewish community in an intellectual debate. I definitely will do that. Any predictions for the new year? Uh, it's going to be a better year than the last year, I hope. <laughs> but, you know, I worry about the new year because the new year leads us to the 2024 election cycle, which could be one of the most divisive in history. The United States must emulate what Israel does. Israel has an election commission uh, consisting of distinguished former judges and very, very prominent nonpartisan people uh, that you can bring election complaints to. England has the same thing. The United States doesn't have that. If you have an election camp uh, complaint, you have to bring it to either the Republican-controlled House or the Democrat-controlled Senate or the judiciary, which are appointed by either Democrats or Republicans. So there's no real credibility about elections. That's what I worry about uh, for next year, because Rosh Hashanah will be and Yom Kippur will be uh, just before the election. Right, just before, because it's going to be a late Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, so it's going to be much closer to Election Day next year than this year. Yom Kippur, either always late or early. They're never on time. Exactly. That's what the that's what the Jewish comedians say. Final final question uh, regarding Hunter Biden and the whole process where they're looking to impeach President Joe Biden. What do you think about that? They shouldn't even try to impeach Joe Biden. He hasn't committed treason. He hasn't committed bribery, and he hasn't committed other high crimes and misdemeanors. And uh, the same people who supported me when I defended President Trump in front of the Senate, saying he hadn't committed. An impeachable offense, you're now saying, well, we want a broader definition of impeachable offenses, uh, the wall and, uh, you know, letting immigrants in and doing all these other things, uh, sanctuary cities, they're impeachable offenses. No, they're not. Read the Constitution, treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And I don't believe that there's any evidence that President Biden committed any impeachable offense while he was president of the United States. Forget about when he was vice president. That probably is not an impeachable offense. Oh, it's not. In other words, their whole evidence is not that he's taking money when he was president, but he was <laughs> vice president. That's what Hunter Biden's story is all about. So you're saying even if they prove that he took money and was bribed as vice president, it wouldn't get into an impeachment process because he's as president now? I don't think so. Um, uh, you know, the, the Constitution doesn't say, but it seems to strongly imply that the impeachable act must occur uh, during the presidency not back in the day. Now, we know that Vice President, former Vice President Agnew, was forced out of office, but he was indicted 
uh, for actions that he took as governor. And also some of the payments were made while he was vice president of the United States. And so maybe he could have been impeached. But unless they can tie uh, some of the allegations, first they have to prove the allegations, and then they'd have to tie them to, I think, the presidency of, of, of Joe Biden. I don't think you can impeach a sitting president for what he may have done when he was vice president. I have to admit the law is not clear on this, but that's my best understanding. So just to clarify, so if somebody is president of the United States and they want to impeach the president, they can only impeach him on acts that he's done while he was president. Anything that he did prior to being president would not be an impeachable offense, according to your interpretation. My interpretation, I think reasonable people could disagree about that. For example, if he committed a crime of bribery running for president and that got him elected, I think that would be covered. But if he committed a crime five years earlier, 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, I don't think so. Now, having been vice president may make it a stronger case, but they'd have to overcome that issue if they wanted to impeach him for conduct that occurred outside of his actual incumbency as president of the United States. Because you and I know that's the whole premise of the hearings right now is to try to tie him into Hunter Biden and getting money from 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 Ukraine and getting money from China. That all took place prior to being president. So based on what you're saying, they couldn't even bring impeachment proceedings based on that theory. They're, I think, trying to show that some of it continued um, and maybe did have some impact while he was president. But if they're going to impeach, they have to be absolutely sure of their grounds because the last three impeachments obviously failed and should have failed. The only proper impeachment in American history never happened, and that was Richard Nixon. He committed impeachable crimes, and that's why he resigned, because he knew that Republicans, his own party, were going to vote to impeach him and remove him from office if he didn't resign. So we don't have that kind of consensus today. So I think it was wrong to impeach President Trump, and I think it's wrong based on the evidence that I've seen now to impeach uh, President Biden. Harvard Law Professor Meredith, Professor Alan Avi Dershowitz, thank you for being with us. Always a treat, always on, always have such great conversations, great thoughts. And I have to go out and buy my book, Get Trump. Um, it tells all, the, I predicted all of these charges, including the civil charges by 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 James. So if, if you want want to read about those cases, that's the place to read it. And you can't get it in your bookstores. Bookstores don't sell Get Trump, local bookstores, because they're all left-leaning. So you have to get it on Amazon, where it was number one for nonfiction bestsellers, uh, but nobody could, libraries didn't carry it. Wow. And stores didn't carry it. So if you want to get it, you have to get it online. Any other predictions in the book that haven't come yet to fruition, but you see happening? Uh, well, I, you know, I predicted all four of these um, indictments. I predicted the Hunter Biden indictment, and I predicted the attempt to impeach um, uh, Biden. Um, I, I, I hope. I hope there are no other predictions that uh, come true. I also uh, predicted that Trump uh, would lose the next election. So uh, we'll wait and see how that plays out. It would be much better if he were defeated honestly, from my point of view, honestly, by a fair vote where he couldn't complain than if he's under the 20, you know, under the 14th Amendment prohibited from running. That would cause a real uh, upheaval in the United States if some secretaries of state took them off the ballot. That's just not the right way to do things in America where the people get to decide who's president, not bureaucrats. 
Look forward to having you back again. Shana Tova, happy, healthy New Year. I'm sure we're going to speak a lot more to you during the, this coming year. Okay. Good, good, good job, everybody. Have a good weekend. And happy circus. Please welcome the 110th mayor of the great city of New York, Mayor Eric Adams. One of my favorite radio shows. Always good speaking with you, Zev. Take care. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Are you interested in hosting your own radio show and podcast or perhaps a TV program? Talkline Network can help you get on the air from one hour weekly to 24 hours a day. Ideal for ethnic, foreign language, medical, business, and religious broadcasting. We also have full-time radio stations for lease, as well as FMHD channels. For more information, please call 212-769-1925. That's 212-769-1925. Or email zevbrenner at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast, the pulse beat of the Jewish community. For continuous Jewish programs, talklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms, or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the talklinenetwork.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.